Bonjour. Welcome to the Dexabit Data Diaries. This is your captain speaking. You're listening to the Data Diaries. Data Diaries. So he's got the best voice. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Today we're here with Rachel McKay, manager of the palaces at Kew, which is a British royal palace in the Kew Gardens on the banks of the River Thames up from London and includes the Great Pagoda. But during COVID-19 closures, Rachel went above and beyond volunteering all around the region with various cultural institutions that needed help with managing through shutdown or preparing for reopening and setting up a site called the Recovery Room to share her experiences along the way and was just named one of Blue Loop's top 50 influences in the museum sector. So we are very lucky to be joined here by Rachel today to talk about visitor management in the face of COVID-19 and in managing the recovery at the front line. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. And you did a wonderful blog series a while back uh, called Crisis in Context and one titled The Great Crisis Wash-Up, which I loved. What are some of the biggest lessons uh, you feel that we've learned as a sector that we have to take from what was 2020? Yeah, so one of the big projects I was doing um, in lockdown was looking at how museums and heritage sites were managing the crisis of coronavirus. And so I did interviews with operations managers at 10 different um, attractions just to find out more about how they were managing crisis. And so from that, there were there were a few lessons that came out of it. And the biggest one probably is that many organisations were just fundamentally unprepared for the type of crisis mm. that coronavirus was. So most um, organisations either didn't include pandemic as a possible scenario or if they did they planned for um, a pandemic where they would carry on operating but just how would you carry on operating with less staff and so the idea was that we would keep on going and I think that's a fundamental bias that we have as operators is that we will keep going whatever and actually hadn't considered that there might be situations where that wouldn't be possible at all Mm. Um, and so I, I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that when we plan for crisis um, it's all based on previous data so what's happened in crises before and one of my interviewees actually pointed out to me like that you know all the all the attention in probably the last 20 years has been on terrorism because that's been the kind of major threat in the UK and so thinking about things like vehicle attacks and lone wolf attacks and things that were happening and happening to cultural organizations across the world as well um, and then if you go back to the 80s and actually things that still live in many organizations crisis management plans today are things like bomb threats and uh, suspicious mail and that all goes back to the 1980s when people were thinking about the type of threats that were coming from things like the IRA so it's all based all of our planning is based on what we think might happen and it's a very specific sort of shape of crisis so it's a fire or a flood or an incident where there's an emergency and then that stops and there's a very clear line between the emergency and business continuity coronavirus has been a completely different shape of crisis so it's like it's been an evolving crisis it's been changing all the time and actually there's not been a clear line between the emergency and business continuity and so I think that really is the the main reason why people were not prepared for a crisis that was this shape and then I think as well as that the other lessons that came up in my research were the importance of Uh, emotional well-being of the staff dealing with this crisis in the museum and heritage sector and of course that will be the same for all sectors but there was a a real 
passionate attachment that staff have to their sites in this business and shutting them down was something that they hadn't considered and Hmm. were not prepared for and so that had a real toll and we can see actually that organizations are taking that really seriously and are putting in lots of measures um to to try and make sure that they are are taking care of their staff which is obviously good and has to continue and then the other main one i think and this is the main difference between crisis management in visitor attractions and museums and heritage sites to like the corporate world is the importance of sector collaboration and you just don't really tend to get that elsewhere but in in the visitor attraction museum world it has always been a really um sort of sharing sector and people have really come together in this time to share information and ideas and expertise in a way that is quite unique I think. It's so true Rachel you're talking about the shape of the crisis for COVID being so different to other crises that we've had to deal with around the the world. For me at home in New Zealand, a lot of our cultural institutions, the biggest preparation that we were doing was around earthquakes and and that reality. But that is, and and as devastating as it is, it is a, a stop and restart. There isn't that big holding pattern that we've seen through 2020 which is it's emotionally exhausting from for teams isn't it yeah exactly and it takes a lot more stamina I think than um, than just dealing with mm. a with a, a sort of common or garden crisis mm. and you mentioned one of the silver linings of a situation like the one the world's gone through um what exactly are those uh well again looking back at previous data um history sort of shows us that crisis is always a time um, of opportunity and I think the the parallel of World War II is is definitely being overused uh, in some quarters but um, I think that that probably is the, the last example we have of um, a crisis that was a completely different shape and that there was an opportunity there to rethink the purpose of museums and uh, I've done a lot of reading around kind of museums and how they acted in World War II um, in the UK and there was a big push uh, to realise the educational potential of museums because so, so many of the other educational facilities were being taken away because of the war. And so the um, director of the Museums Association in the UK at that time saw it as a real opportunity to change what the purpose of a museum was. And then at the same time, because all the national treasures had sort of been taken away to be put in these caves in Wales to sort of protect them from the bombs, it meant that the objects that were coming out on display were more social history objects that were slightly more everyday. And actually people could relate to them a lot better. And people who were running these exhibitions found that actually people related to them a lot better and it, they were more relevant to them, we would say now, I guess. And so there was that realisation that social history would be could be a really interesting topic and a really powerful experience for visitors. Um so I guess that's the kind of parallel here is that coronavirus um, and the sort of the fact that it's happened at the same time as the Black Lives Matter movement, which obviously is not a, a coincidence, that the parallel there, I guess, is again that rethinking of the purpose of museums and heritage sites. And actually, because the crisis has been so devastating, there has been that push to rethink what it is that we're all doing because that we have to get really specific about that now. We have to sort of try and make sure we're really focused on what our goals are. So, I mean, the fact that mm. the war, I don't want to hold it up as a shining example of where, where everything went right because when one, it was obviously a war, but two, mm-hmm. it actually is a cautionary tale as well. Um, when the 
national treasures came back, they went back out on display again, and those social history objects went back into storage. It was a few decades, really, before that potential was realised again. So silver linings don't just appear, you have to make them appear. And war can offer a cautionary tale because actually we need to make those changes happen. So if we do want to rethink the purpose and missions of our sites, it's something that we have to do for ourselves. It's not something that's going to happen as a byproduct of COVID. It is, I think, something where those paradigm shifts that we see in an immediate response to something, um, they then sort of die off and then and then you kind of have to wait a decade for them to come back and, and become part of the, the true new normal that we then build on. And it'll be really interesting to see how our place in the world as cultural institutions helps our communities rebuild and then um, what that means for us long term in, in terms of dynamics like the blockbuster exhibition versus local community works. And so uh, out of all the places that you've been working with yeah. so far, did reopening unfold as everyone expected or as, as you expected? Well, nothing in visitor operations goes entirely as expected ever. So <laughs> sure, I'm sure every site had to make some tweaks. I guess the big difference between this re- sort of nationwide or worldwide, I suppose, reopening operation, operation was that everybody was kind of doing it at the same time. And usually when you're doing an opening or a reopening of an individual site, that isn't the case. But because... I guess the entire sector was kind of on Zoom for a couple of months in the lead up to this. There was so much talk on webinars and conferences and conversations about how we were going to handle the restrictions. And so I I feel like it was the best opportunity we had to plan because everybody was just talking about it. Um, There there were so many good examples of sharing. Um, In the UK, we have a, well, particularly actually based in London, we have a, a visitor experience development forum which is just people who talk about visitor experience and operations in visitor attractions all the time and they set up webinars with um outdoor attractions that had been able to be open throughout and so they were able to share some of the learning that they'd had and then as soon as those first attractions were opening up their their directors were being dragged out of of the operation and put on a webinar because we all wanted to find out <laughs> what had gone on um the i guess the common issues that the people had were there's been this there's been this thing about member drop-off or free um, entry drop-off up to kind of 40% um, in some places, which has been a, a struggle for some sites. And then I think some sites who where there was had never been any kind of visitor complaint or any visitor issues, there was a little bit of, of a struggle there with some of the visitor behaviour just because it was such a different experience and people were not used to queuing or having to book, that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of the onus to deal with these issues falls on the front of house staff which is why my so many of my resources are geared towards supporting those teams but also so many positives to come out of the reopening the main stories we heard in the webinars after people were initially reopening was that visitors were so happy to come back to these places in tears some of them as well as the staff so just just absolute joy um and i other issues that i think are positives like we've been able to introduce time ticketing in a big way that in a way that we would never have been able to do before um and places like um i know people at painsville park the fact that they've introduced time ticketing in an outdoor attraction means that people who have booked their tickets um they come even if it's raining whereas before you might have looked at the window and said well i'm not going to go to painsville park today and now they can and then i used to work before i was at um star crawl palaces i was at the natural history museum that's 
probably one of London's busiest attractions. Um, the, the crowds and the queues were, you know, a real challenge to visiting when we were there. And it was, you know, something that was could could potentially be quite off-putting for, um, for visitors. And now that they've been able to introduce time ticketing, that's really starting to manage visitor, visitor capacity. And I mean, when I worked at the NHM, it was an absolute pipe dream that we would ever be able to convince people that they had to pre-book a time slot. So a lot of these changes are things that, you know, we've been wanting to do for a long time in the, in the industry and, and now we're, we're getting the chance to do that. Yes, I think those three, those uh, couple of challenges really tie in with what we've been seeing in the sector of, you know, the challenge of capacity and managing that attrition or no-show rate and, and intricacies of working with time ticketing data and, and bookings and things. And then that that shift in experience of changing dwell times. We've seen um, in sentiment analysis of visitor reviews coming out of attractions that um, COVID is unsurprisingly the number one word that is uh, or topic that is talked about. Um, so it is it is front of mind for people in terms of what makes them feel safe and happy. And speaking of, what are some of the strategies and tactics that you've seen working to get visitors back in the door and and having a good time and a safe time during the middle of the pandemic? I guess the organisations that are doing really well right now are the ones who are able to really focus on their local audience. Um, So it's good for visitors because they don't feel they have to travel too far or it might be they can just walk there. Um, But also people feel that they are supporting their local organisation. And so focusing on that local audience, I think, has been good for, for, for attractions. But also some of my colleagues I've been speaking to, particularly at sites like Stonehenge, where there's a real there has been a real international um, visitorship. Um, my colleague at Stonehenge actually mentioned to me that there is this new local audience, which is new residents. So it might be um, students that are here on sort of student visas, or it might be people that have recently moved to the UK who are, they're residents, but they've never been focused on really by these kind of international sites because they're, they live here. And you kind of make the assumption that if you live here, you've been to all these places already, you've been once, you don't need to go again. But actually there are people you know, who are now resident in the UK who haven't done all these sites. And so actually that's an audience that's really starting to come through, particularly at, at Stonehenge. And that's a real interesting um, story. Yeah, that I haven't kind of heard being articulated before so that's that's interesting um i guess being and being an outdoor space is of course a massive um boost and actually painsville park that i was talking about earlier they um they're getting record numbers just now even in you know september october so that's just obviously such a such a benefit if you have that that outdoor space but then for those who don't i think telling stories that are relevant to to what we're going through um i'm from Dundee in Scotland and the V&A in Dundee, they've got an exhibition on that's um, all about design in, in, in a global pandemic. It's called Now Accepting Contactless. And so just content that kind of relates to what people are going through at the moment. Although people might want to go to visitor attractions to, to, to escape, people also want to go to museums to, to think more about what's happening. And then I guess there's other museums who are kind of embarking on that as well in in terms of the contemporary collecting and trying to collect what's happening in the COVID world. I I know, for example, Mm. the Museum of London Science Museum are taking part in in that sort of thing. Um, I think also like emphasising the positives of of visiting as well um, is something that I've certainly been trying to do. I mentioned the Natural History Museum and the fact that you're able to visit without crowding. I mean, nobody wants to see the museum's crowded again more than me but there are some of those big big national attractions 
crowding has been an issue for some visitors. And you can see that when you look through, you know, TripAdvisor and other sorts of visitor feedback. So actually, this is the time to go. If you don't like those crowds, this is the time to go. Um, and then places like the National Gallery who have created these kind of curated routes around I mean, now the National Gallery is amazing, but it's massive. And I always feel super intimidated when I go because I feel like I can't, I'm not taking enough in and I'm not seeing the good bits. So to have that sort of weight taken off your shoulders and you just go where you're told and have a lovely curated visit. And that's actually great. So, you know, there's there's, there's great positives that are coming out of these restrictions in some places as well. Um, and I think um, making sure that the human interaction is still there. So I know that, a lot of people were worried about the fact that people were going to be behind visors, behind screens and not going to be able to get close to people, not going to be able to talk to people in the same way. And it does make a difference, you know, when you've got a mask on. But people are adapting. People are adapting to, you know, we're doing it ourselves. You, you, when you're in a shop and wearing a mask, you're much more verbal in your greeting and your thank you. And so we're, we're, we're all learning as a society how to communicate in that way and, and it's really important that we keep making sure that that human contact is still there when, when we are visiting places. Yeah it'll be interesting to see how many of those changes stick as well post-COVID. I think um, one of the things that's always fascinated me is we've, we always see a, a, most of the time a correlation between high density sites in terms of how many people are in the building or or venue at one time and visitor happiness and and it strikes me that there is we we often talk about capacity from a health and safety perspective especially now but there is definitely a a trade-off in the visitor experience as well Uh, you pack so many people in and it does start to impact um how much we enjoy what we yeah absolutely i mean when i was at the natural history museum you know you'd be empty until about 11 a.m and then empty after four at four o'clock and it was just that really middle middle part of the day that was absolutely rammed and so the opportunity to spread that out over the day even if it's even if you know we get back Mm. to a point where we don't have to reduce the numbers if we can at least spread that visitor load and actually somewhere the natural history museum you could look at spreading it in a sort of geographical way as well that would be such mm. an interesting thing to explore. And I think if we can, you know, this is maybe a way to get visitors to realise the benefits of doing that and the benefits of pre-booking. So it, it could be a real great opportunity for places like the Natural History Museum. And I know as, as soon as a visitor attraction reopens post-COVID, whether they're a museum or a garden or even something like an aquarium or theme park, all eyes are going to the numbers you know, how many people like we've been talking about should be capacity capped at and what does that mean in terms of our booking allowances and how do you manage walk-ups versus handling the attrition that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much in this. So what sorts of things do leaders need to empower their teams, particularly in that operational sense, with that information that they need in a situation like this? Well, I think at the moment it's a it's still a learning process. So I think one thing that COVID has really done, and this again came out in my research, is um, I suppose maybe in some places engendered this sort of honesty between leaders and their teams because actually nobody knows the answers, and for a long time nobody knew what furlough was going to mean. Nobody knew when we were going to reopen, and so I think continuing that honesty and openness with, with the teams that when, when we when we reopen attractions it's going to be a learning process and leaders and teams will be learning together um so things like dropout and attrition as you mentioned it's an issue 
Um, but the longer it goes on, the more we can learn to predict what those numbers are going to be. And then you can sort of overbook. So it's a constant balancing act. I mean, we when I am, um, you mentioned it, the Great Pagoda queue, and we reopened that in 2018. And it's a very, very small capacity. So in a way, it's that we were dealing with some of the issues that a lot of people were dealing now. You can only fit 35 people in that building every half hour. So it's a, you're having to constantly, very closely manage uh, the capacity coming in. And what I felt with my team is that they just need to be completely empowered to be able to utilize that data as it comes in and to, to look at it and make decisions about how, what they're going to do. So, for example, one of the things that they can do if they feel it's really quiet, because each 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 time slot of the pagoda, you can you have to go up and come down again in one time slot. So it's literally half hour time slots all through the day of 35 people. If you feel that the day is so quiet that you're not going to need to do that, then you can kind of make the decision to, to go free flow. And that changes mm. how the whole day works. And, you know, that that wasn't that I that was it was important for me that even if I wasn't at the pagoda that day, they could just look at the data and make that decision, decision themselves. And because we were only ever open for six months at a time, it's so nice now to see the teams go from being really quite flummoxed by the till and the precisions of the time slots and how intense it is to being able to really work that data to their advantage and be, be able to sort of surf that data to to manage the day well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it, it's a learning process just like that. And we will all become experts through doing this stuff. So, you know, it's I think it is just that openness and embracing the fact that we're all learning together. And when you are leading front of house teams through that sort of learning process and, and being open and transparent with them, what, what are some of the other sorts of data points and insights that are useful to inform the team, to motivate people, help that continuous improvement, et cetera, especially at a time like this when we all have to be so lean and agile to respond and, and keep up quickly with what's happening in the world or with our visitors? I go back to that openness because I, I feel that you can't give your teams too much information, really. And there's a couple of things that I do when, when we're open, I do with my team at Q. And so we sh- we share these monthly, these monthly KPIs that we kind of always look at and always go through at the start of the month. Um, and then actually going into more detail when that's necessary. So there was... Um, there was a time, I think it was maybe last year or the year before, there was a time where our on-site donations really started to dip. And I found it really useful to sit down with my front of house team and actually go through with them in some detail about how um, the the finances of the organisation work. So the, the difference that donations income made to our bottom line and how important it was and how really it was keeping us open and that, you know, that level of, of detail and actually you know, nobody wants to sit and watch a PowerPoint presentation full of um, charts and pie charts and line graphs, but actually, you know, treating them like stakeholders in the organization that they're working for and allowing them to to really understand that data and what it means for the organization, I actually found really, really important. And I, I found that it worked well when they had a bigger stake in what was happening. Um, and then there's other things that you can do to sort of keep closer to your videos, your visitors. And the, a lot of the stuff is stuff that I kind of um, stole really from other people, which is what we all do in the industry. But when I was at the Natural History Museum, the interpretation team used to have a weekly meeting where they would sit down and talk about best practice in interpretation at other venues. And when I went to Q, I really wanted 
the front of house team to feel like you know they're a museum profession as much as an interpretation team so I really encourage my team to do that and we sit down and have conversations about where we've been and you know the front of house uh, practice that we've seen elsewhere and what we can what we can steal from it um but then it's not it's not just about giving them information and insights it's about getting it from them too because they actually are one of the best sources of data um at, at, at my site because they are the ones who are in most direct contact with the visitors and they're the ones that see the operation on the ground the most so actually it's about getting that information from them um again when i worked at the natural history museum there was we um i chaired a group called the customer service insight group and it was pulling together visitor feedback from all different channels so your mystery visits your traditional feedback but also one of those channels was just anecdotal feedback feedback that we we got from the front of house team and it was really important to me that that was rated as highly as any of the other channels because you know if you've got a mystery visit um questionnaire that comes in i've seen that being taken far too seriously because it's that's Mm, one person i mean it's it's such a rich kind of a uh, source of information but that is just one person on one day if you've got a front of house team who are telling you what visitors are saying every single day that's actually really valuable as well now every channel has its ups and downs and you have to look at a whole mixture to kind of get a really true picture but what the front of house team are saying is as important as any other um any other channel and actually it's cheaper and quicker than any of the other channels well so I've made decisions or changes to the operation within the day or within the hour based on feedback from front of house teams so that's a really important channel for me and I love the idea that you mentioned of treating the team like stakeholders and and understanding the relationship between museums and money for the team as a whole and then positioning something like donation conversion in there rather than we can we can so easily slip into a world of separation of museums where money is something other people or other departments deal with that we don't have to touch rather than sort of the whole team knowing what funds the great work that we do and then working as one to achieve those goals whether they be financial or social which are so intricately linked yeah I mean I think I've got uh, my situation at Q is quite it's quite easy to do that because it's quite a small site we're a part of a big organization obviously you know we're the organization that has the Tower of London but actually when you look at Q we're talking about quite small figures and it's quite small numbers between break even and not so it's very easy to wrap your head around you know what what that means and also a fiver and intonation box does make a real difference so I think that really helps in in sort of clarifying how important you know the ups and downs of the graph are Mm. and what are some of the rhythms and how your front of house team work together and how they then collaborate with other departments or other sites particularly around encouraging that culture of excellence and innovation and improvement what are some of the things that you'll be prioritizing on reopening yourself um i guess when we reopen q um which will be in april 2021 um, we're going to be reopening uh, the exhibition that we planned for 2020, which is um, all about George III and his mental health because Q Palace is where he came to recover. So one of the things I was really working on um, um, before, which will still continue to be a priority after um, COVID, is how the front of house team are enabled to deal with an exhibition that has packed such an emotional punch. 
because I think in terms of collaboration with other departments, it's far too easy for and you know exhibitions or interpretation or whatever it's called in your various organizations for them to produce an exhibition or a program and kind of let it let it loose onto the floor uh, without enough consideration about how the front of house staff are going to manage the exhibition and the people in the exhibition you know if you do a really emotionally impactful exhibition like the one that we're planning to do next year then we really have a responsibility to make sure that the front of house team are prepared to have that those conversations um even without the exhibition it's a big topic at Q, and you do get visitors coming in and actually opening up about their own mental health or about something that's happened in their family it's almost as if it's easier to talk about because you've got that historical framework to put it into. So all of a sudden, you know, you're a front of house member of staff and somebody's sobbing in front of you. I mean, that's the sort of thing that can happen at these exhibitions and it's brilliant that it does, but we can't send the front of house teams out into it unprepared. So I really wanted the team to be as involved as possible in the development of that whole programme. And um, we worked with a a mental health organisation to make sure that we will be continuing as well when we reopen to make sure that they have the right training and support so I think it's it's always about trying to encourage the front of house team to be involved in things right from the start but also to make sure that other departments are including them as well so it's about I I always see my role something like as a sort of liaison role we are trying to make connections between the visitor and teams or the front of house team and other teams just trying to make sure everything is fitting together as smoothly as possible Wow, that's so impressive, both in the important work of fostering care for mental health, but also in, in embedding um, the front of house team and, and the product development of bringing that new experience out into the world. Um, it's very cool to hear about. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the the data from visitor services observation as a channel and, and mystery visits as well. And I know voice of the visitor is so important in times of recovery, particularly that we're seeing all of those COVID-related topics now so popular in visitor reviews and feedback. Um, and we're seeing things like mask, mask policies and capacity management and, and so forth as being mentioned by visitors to help them feel safe. What sorts of other things like that active listening that you mentioned before are going to help visitor services teams stay close to their visitors? Um, I guess yeah, what I said before in terms of looking at lots of different channels rather than just focusing on one thing like your mystery visits. I mean, I sound like I'm really down on mystery visits. They're great, but they're a snapshot and they need to be mixed with other things, as do as do all the channels, I think. Um, but there are other things as well. And I think that these thing, these schemes that there are, that exist to get you closer to visitors are only more important now in a, a post-COVID opening world. Um as important as they were before but the um things that i've done in the past which again i i I freely steal from everywhere everywhere else so when i was at the natural history museum i stole a scheme from the british museum that they do called a vest which means visitor experience support team and it's just basically getting backup house staff to come down on the floor with a volunteer sash and um help out during busy times and it's really really useful for um helping people who work back of house connect with visitors and understand what are the real concerns that visitors have what are the questions that they always ask um and and to observe how visitors move around how they use the space where they go what they do so that's a really good scheme that i i try to sort of keep going and i think that should 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 be a requirement for any trustee or any director i know um 
Mary Beard, who's a trustee at the BM, I've seen her do it a couple of times and she always talks on Twitter about having a great time. So I think that's a really good thing. And then things like accompanied visits. um, If you walk around with a visitor, you're you're bound to see things that you haven't noticed before and you you know you would know that just from doing just from walking around your museum with with family or friends as you're showing them around they spot things that you haven't even seen before um so things like accompanied visits where you recruit visitors to actually walk around with and and either have a conversation with them about it or actually just watch their interactions with each other and observe that is a really important tool as well but actually you know i would say that Visitor services teams staying close to their visit visitors isn't normally the issue. The, the biggest gap is is getting that information from the visitor services teams to the rest of the organisation, and I think this is a gap that that is narrowing. But certainly, a few years ago, when sitting in in meetings, I felt like I I felt like I was representing the visitor, and other people were representing their departments. If that makes sense, it felt like visitors. It was the job of the visitor services to represent the mm, visitor um, and so I feel like I've shifted from trying to do that to actually trying to get other teams closer to the visitor with things like BEST that I mentioned before because actually every team in the organisation should be representing the visitor and every decision that we make should be centred on, on the audience and so I think that situation has improved probably not everywhere and actually now because things have changed so much and are, are still changing so fast it's even more important to be always tapped in to what our audiences are thinking no matter what department you work for and I love that idea of a day of in the life of visitor services that's one to steal as you say such (laughs) brilliant advice uh, and so such timely advice for us all thank you so much Rachel and where can everybody go to get more from the recovery room yes so it's the the recovery room blog.com and you'll find resources from everything from like blogs, video tutorials and templates and training resources, all of it aimed at helping us all recover and rebuild better. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for such an amazing contribution to the sector um, and all the best for your own reopening ahead. Thank you so much.